What's the story of Christmas? What do we love about Christmas? And uh, I find it interesting that not only are there great discussions about the story of God at Christmas, but they're also some of the best stories in our culture in the movies come out at Christmas. All the good movies come out middle of summer and at Christmas time. And the Star Wars uh, kind of saga has wrapped up to some extent with uh, The Rise of Skywalker, a new movie that uh, I'm very excited to see. But I find it interesting when there are powerful fantasy stories that have control, that they have a, a whole narrative in our society where if you said the light side and the dark side, anyone would know what you're talking about, about Star Wars. I also find it interesting that Anytime these stories, whether it was the Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or other powerful stories, become, uh, kind of shape our culture, there's also uh, critics and uh, literary critics and movie critics and writers that end up saying that it's almost kind of disappointing that people in this modern age insist on believing and loving and falling in love with these fantasy stories that they know are not true, with characters that they know are not real. And the, the literary critics always end up saying something like this. It's a bit archaic that we still believe in black and white, good and evil, because as uh, I've read recently, even, even just this week, that they would say the world is gray, and objecting good and evil doesn't really exist in the world. We should move on from these things and stop loving, stop believing that the world is going to end right, and that there is objective justice and good and love and meaning in the world. They don't always say that, because that's a depressing thing to write on a movie critic uh, thing, but that is, in the end, what many people think. I also find it interesting that um, though we know these stories are not factual, they seem to fulfill a set of longings in the human heart that history cannot satisfy. Our minds remind us at the end of a movie that the story wasn't true. Or they remind us at the beginning of a movie when it says this story happened in a, a time long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then we have the Christmas story where a being from another world, in a sense, has miraculous powers. He heals. He has authority over power in the world. And then his friends turn on him. He dies, finally rises from the dead, and saves everyone in the end. What an interesting fairy tale. I think we're conditioned to believe that the Christmas story is a bit of a fairy tale. My question is, I just want to pose this question for the morning. What if it's true? How would that matter to you? How would that change your identity? How would that change your plans in life? Would it affect your hope or your joy? What if the Christmas story is true? So we're gonna look through Luke at a few different passages to talk about Jesus' birth and the advent of Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn, turn them there. We won't have the passages of Scripture on the screen, so you could Google them, uh, or you could use your app on your phone or have your Bible. But we'll start in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 does not start, consequently, with uh, a, a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Instead, it starts with this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. These things about Jesus were handed down to us by those who were first the eyewitnesses. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write up an orderly account so that, in verse 4, you may know the certainty of the things that have been taught. 
Luke starts out the gospel by saying, I did some eyewitness investigation. These are eyewitnesses. I'm drawn up an orderly account as other people have, and we have some of those historic accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels. But he doesn't start it by saying, here's a fantasy that if you believe it, it might bring some temporary meaning into your life. Instead, Luke says, these are the facts. And I, I pose the question as I did a second ago. If Christmas is true, then maybe it's the fact that all the longings of our heart that desire good, justice, hope for the future, maybe the reason why all these fantasy stories, even though we know they're not true and the characters are not true, maybe the reason we love them is because they're showing us a glimpse of a reality that is true, that our heart is meant to attach to. And at Christmas, we see the advent of this story unfolding in the life of Jesus. We're going to talk about peace in the world this morning, and we'll move relatively quickly through three issues about peace. The problem of peace, namely that it's hard for us to have it in the world, or our conception of peace in the world is difficult. Secondly, we're going to talk about the person of peace, that the Bible says, Luke says, the Gospels describe that peace is found in Jesus, in the person of Jesus. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the product of peace, meaning if Jesus is in your life, what does it produce? What is the product of that peace in your life? All wrapped up in this kind of title, Peace in the World. Let's read our passage in now in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Luke chapter 2, verse 10. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest, they said. And on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. This is a famous passage. Peace is a famous concept that jumps out of that passage and it's read every year at Christmas. But I think the main question I ask when I read that is, what did Jesus and the angels and Luke as the author of the Gospel of Luke, what did he think came through the birth of Jesus in what sense is peace brought into the world? You might be able to make the case that if Jesus' birth brought about global peace, then he probably failed. That maybe he was a well-intentioned kind of like um, social commentator where he, he brought some good ideas into the world where he said everyone loved their neighbor and people went, whoa, love your neighbor? Never thought of that before. What a concept. People think maybe he was like a social activist and he brought justice and he brought some concepts, but like many idealistic people, he simply failed because the world is broken. I mean, in what sense does Luke think that Jesus' birth brought peace into the world? I think we have to ask that question. And again, we'll work through it in answering that question, talking about now first, the problem with peace. The problem with peace is that most people assume when they become Christians or when they hear about Jesus, that either Jesus' birth brought international peace or internal peace. But I think it's important that we come to Jesus really seeking to know who he is as he has revealed himself. 
A lot of people, I think, have a conception of Jesus where they'll say, I like to think of Jesus in this particular way, social activist. I like to think of Jesus in this particular way. He has good advice that will bring you maybe some internal peace and make you feel good about your life. But every good relationship in your life is made better when you come to a person and you say, I want to get to know you as you are. Like if you came to a friend and you said, I would like to be your friend because of the benefit that you might pose into my life. Would you ever be friends with that person? No. Or I can think back on times when I, um, as a pastor, people will call you up and say, hey, I just got a thing going on in my life. Can we talk about it? And I had a meeting with a young lady and she confessed. She said, I believe in Jesus. I know my identity is in him. I, I, I know that I am saved and I have a future in him. But what good does that matter if boys don't pay attention to me? And then she said, I just can't wait to get married so I can finally feel good about myself. And I had just been recently married. And so I thought, keep waiting, sister. You know, like there's nothing about that circumstance that just immediately makes you go like, I never have self-esteem issues ever for the rest of my life because I have a wife, you know, that just doesn't happen. It's an insufficient thinking about how God's going to work and just give you a spouse. And then all of a sudden your life's going to be made complete. Or that Jesus is going to deliver you internal peace just as a, as a force. All that to say, we can't come to God and say, here's what I'm trying to get from you. We have to ask this question, Jesus, what did you come to bring and really do? And we have to listen to Jesus. So let's see in, in the book of Luke what Jesus says. In Luke 21, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it very quickly. Jesus basically says, he did not come to wipe out war in the world. Luke 21, people ask him, what are the signs of the end of the age? And in verse 9, he says, when you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be surprised. These things must happen first, by the, but the end will come right away. And then in verse 10, then he says to the nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to bring global international peace, not primarily. I, my birth is not primarily about international peace. He's saying, in fact, with me being on earth, it will cause a stirring and an uprising that will exist throughout, in a sense, the church age until his return. So there will, in fact, be more turmoil because of the, the enmity that a sinful world has with the Savior coming into it. It'll cause more strife. And then some of you might say, well, okay, cool. He didn't bring international peace, but maybe he brought internal peace and a feeling of peace. And then in Luke 12, 51, Jesus kind of debunks that. 12, 51, he says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, I came to bring division. From now on, there will be five, this is more of the internal peace here in verse 52. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They'll be divided. Father against son, son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother. Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Jesus listed every possible way that you could possibly have a conflict. Brother, sister, father, son. He's saying there will be internal strife that is brought about by this foreign being the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, coming into a sinful, tumultuous, tumultuous world. There is something about the ingredient of the perfection of God coming into this broken world that will cause a chain reaction to something that does not just bring immediate, chill, zen vibes, according to Jesus. So, Jesus did not primarily come to bring peace 
in those kinds of ways in the world, not primarily. Now, I will say, if we just back up, there are a million verses, well, maybe not a million, but like a bunch of verses in the Bible that do talk about the internal peace that is brought to knowing Jesus. We'll get to that in a minute. And there are people who have gone to war in the name of Jesus that you might say, oh yeah, those are probably the verses people quoted when they used or when they went to war against some other nation or some other religion in the name of Jesus. But um, if you pay attention to history, I think it's rather a shallow or superficial reading of history to think that people went to war in the name of Jesus because any of these Bible passages. If you read the justifications for nations going to war in the name of Jesus, it's never out of a deep acknowledgement of our sinfulness, but the grace of God and the love for our fellow neighbor and mankind because of the love that's been shown us in Jesus, now let's go to war and kill men, women, and children. That's never been the justification. In fact, it shouldn't be any surprise to us that people use the power of people's following of Jesus to justify their economic, political, and social ends. Enough of what I'll say about that. I'm just saying that it might spark something in your mind to say, oh yeah, like people go to war in the name of Jesus, but it's always for other reasons. It always is. Not anything to do with Jesus. So my last thing about the problem of peace is that because we don't see international peace, and because many of us lack internal peace, even if we know Jesus, then we kind of resort to saying, well, how else can I get some sense of inner peace, even as Christians? So we might say, I, I know that I won't get ultimate peace from that next promotion, but I'm going to keep fighting for it because on some level, I do think there will be a resolution to my life. There will be a light that wins over darkness. There will be an evil that, uh, that is eradicated from my heart if I get that next promotion. Or if enough people approve of me and I, my, my um, uh, reputation with the people that I care about really like hits a peak, then my life will find resolution and I'll have peace. Or you might say, once my family just turns out good enough and everyone respects me as the patriarch or everyone appreciates me as the, as the matriarch, then I'll finally have peace in my life. What I mean is there's a problem with peace. It's international. It's personal. And, and so even as Christians, sometimes we fill our hearts with pseudo peace, temporary peace, but it's always that. It's always fake and it's temporary. Some of us might be Christians who really care about social justice. And so as, as people who care about social justice, you might think there's a problem in the world and so I want to fight to help the, the, those in need and to create r racial reconciliation and then political reconciliation. And so you might fight for those things, but then in, in some moments, unless there's some other source of peace, You'll be fighting for your entire life, constantly depressed at the fact that you did not eradicate poverty, that you did not create the level of racial reconciliation that our society clearly is hungry for or needs. And so what we're left with is a lot of Christians who care about social justice, care about causes, but can never complete that peace that the world just completely seeks for, seeks after. Or you might get hyper interested in politics and say, I found the right ideology, politically speaking. And if I can get my people to win and those people to lose, then there will be some source of peace. But they're all us grasping at temporary peace or peace in my particular opinion about what the, way, the, the world should be like. But we still have a problem with peace. I think the 20th century has actually kind of like eradicated any notion that we're going to fight for world peace or that we're going to cause racial reconciliation or that we're going to cause justice in the world. I just don't, I feel like the 20th century has just beat it out of us because there's just been war after war. 
There's been like very few even months of a hundred years where there hasn't been some nation actively at war with some other nation. We have a problem with peace. And yet still, the angel said, here's Jesus, the bringer of peace. So the question remains, what kind of peace did Jesus bring? I have two clues for you. I don't mean to be Evasive, track with me. Two clues. One, Zechariah in uh, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, verse 76, he's the father of John the Baptist, and he turns to his son who is not yet born, and this is what Zechariah says about John. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare a way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, to guide our feet into the path of peace. So what do we know from clue number one about the peace that Jesus brought? It is objective. It's not subjective. It's not my personal opinion about what's going to make the world a better place. There's something authoritative that the Lord is bringing. And then John, little fetus John, that Zachariah says is going to be born and then have a life. And he's going to prepare the way for this peace, the path of peace. It involves salvation. Something's going to save us from this big problem that we have. That's clue number one. Clue number two. Look again at our main passage in Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Famous verse. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. There is an improper translation kind of floating out in the Christmas ether, the King James Version, that says they got the Greek wrong. It was in the 1600s. I don't know who did it. One guy, God knows, the one guy who messed up the Greek uh, grammar in this particular sentence. But the traditional sentence is, glory to God in the highest and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And so I think it influenced a lot of people over the years who went to church, saw the little kid, the little baby Jesus and all the acting and all the wise men and everything. And they heard that and they said, Jesus came to bring peace between all men and women. That there's a there's strife in the world and Jesus came to bring peace between all the people on the world. But that is not what the passage is saying. The angels say, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to men on whom his favor rests. The implication of the verse is saying, there are a number of people who do not have God's favor resting on them. There is a problem in the world in that there are enemies in, that are warring in the universe. And there is a light side and a dark side. And there's no balance to the force because there's a bunch of light. And that light in John chapter 1 fires into the darkness, shatters it, destroys it. The light always wins. There's nobody with a force that's like, do I have more force than you? And there's somebody on the other side that's like, I have more force than you. And they just sweat like crazy doing this until the lightsaber splits in two. That was the other movie. Uh, no spoilers for the new one. Like, there's not a balance to the force. John 1 starts his gospel by saying, not I've written up a credible account. He just writes the importance of Christmas by saying, the world is dark but in God's grace, light fired, it dawned, and it shattered the darkness. The darkness could not comprehend it. It couldn't fight it. The darkness did not win. The story of Christmas is not balance to the force. It's God's victory over darkness. 
Jesus came to bring peace between two warring parties, God and sinners. Jesus did not come to bring peace on earth, not primarily, although as Christians we work for peacemaking, we live for peacemaking, that's a result of our belief in the gospel. Jesus came because we are enemies of God. You might not have thought you were going to hear that on your Christmas sermon. You probably thought, oh, we're just going like to get a free ambassador sweater. Everyone's going to feel warm and cozy. It's all going to be just like a bunch of songs that make you feel great, and you'll walk out and uh, eat some lunch. You are, in our sin, an enemy to God. And so Jesus came to bring peace between you and God. Romans 5 makes that case. And in fact, Romans 5 from the Apostle Paul shows us also that the internal peace that you seek for in life, that you watch a movie, you read a book, you play a video game, and you go, I think God, something has called my heart to be a hero in this world. And that there is something to fight for. All of that is the result of because in, in the Advent, Jesus came to bridge the war and to create peace between us and God. But only after that. Romans 5, Paul says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that we have that faith, it says in Romans 5, it produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope, and hope does not put us to shame. So now we have this inner thing in our life, a source of perseverance. Or for those of us who feel shameful about the decisions that we've made, that that shame is eradicated as a result of our faith in Jesus. And then Romans 5.10 for if we were God's enemies, for while we were God's enemies, Paul writes, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Sometimes at Christmas, we sing songs, and, and because they've been around every single year, we just kind of sing them. As a Christian, you sing these songs, and then you, you sometimes they'll just pierce through the sentimentality of Christmas, where we sing just like we sang today. Hark the herald angel sing. I don't know what hark means. I never say the word hark. But God and sinners reconciled. I know something about that. That God in flesh, he came. And, and because of the, the God man, we, we see him. And we praise the incarnate deity. These Christmas songs are like rich theology where we sing Yes, Jesus was veiled in flesh. We were able to see God when we saw Jesus. And the result of that, God and sinners reconciled. When you become a Christian, we're reconciled to God. We have peace between us and God. Uh, there is kind of a famous um, discussion where one Christian man and one atheist man had a discussion about how to be reconciled and how to know God. It happened in 1929 around Oxford University by two men, one Christian, one atheist. The Christian was J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, and C.S. Lewis, then an atheist and, and uh, once after this discussion became a Christian. So Tolkien was walking with him in a discussion that went late into the night where Tolkien was trying to explain what it looks like to become a Christian and put your faith in Jesus. And C.S. Lewis later wrote and described this discussion. He said, my objections to Christianity at the time were twofold. One, what does the birth and life and death of a man 2,000 years ago matter to my life today? And secondly, 
I am an objective scientific person. I only believe what can be proven by science. And so what purpose would I have to even pay attention to the life of Jesus? Because after all, I only believe things that are objectively provable by science. Uh, uh, Tolkien, more of a scientific person, had an answer for this. C.S. Lewis is more of an artist, more of a, you know, a a literary person, more of a writer. And so um, he responded to this argument. Here's how the argument went. Tolkien said, when in the presence of art, regardless of what you believe, don't you feel that there is truth and love in the world? Even though you know, as a person who only believes in scientific objectivity, only believe things that are scientifically provable, even though you know it's not true. Tolkien made the point that there, don't you sense that there's a reality that you're out of touch with? C.S. Lewis writes this quote in response. Uh, having now agreed with Tolkien. Sometimes you stand before a landscape which seems to embody what you've looked for all of your life. Even in your hobbies, there's always a sense that you're about to break through to that joy, meaning, and peace. The clap of water against the boat, the smell of wood in the shop, the book, the scenery, you never actually have it. They are the scent of a flower that you've never found, the echo of a tune that you've never heard. They're the news from a country that you've never visited. Our longing to be reconnected to something in the universe from which we feel cut off is not a fantasy. It's the truest index of our real situation. So after this argument, C.S. Lewis goes home, and that was the initiation of his faith. He prayed to know Jesus, to have Jesus flood into his life, to have an advent in his heart on that day. And as I said, C.S. Lewis later recounts the conversation, but isn't his point true that all of our scrambling to have hobbies, to have people in our lives, there's a hope at a love, there's a hope at a meaning, there's a hope at a justice that we never break through to because the good news of Christmas is that that love broke through to us. We are at war with God. And then Jesus came as the Son of God to be a mediator to create peace. And so imagine even this Christmas season, Jesus coming to you and not just bringing demands from a holy and just God, the Father, that says, here's how good you need to be and you need to act this way and and even if you don't love the Lord, at least really act like it so that people see that love in you and you gotta be at church all these days and and you're gonna miss the football and you're gonna miss some schedule, but um, at least you'll go to heaven. He doesn't come with demands and he doesn't ask for your demands to say, how can God have you and your personality with him for all of eternity? It's not God saying, I'm not just anymore. I just really need a relationship with you as if God's desperate to know you. He doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus says, Here are God's demands because you are not able to sacrifice yourself to meet these demands to create peace. I will do it for you. And I just love Addie, a little cute blonde girl with the hoodie in the video, asked the best theology of the, uh, you know, that we could even answer, right? It might seem simple, but it's still accurate theology. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Jesus' birthday. Uh, what, What happened after Jesus' birth? He died on the cross. (laughs) Those are important things. He came and he offered peace. Now it's no surprise that a sinful world immediately rebelled against that messenger. 
Like if, if it was just God trying to bend to our will and our cultural assumptions and our idea about the way the world should work, they would have never killed Jesus. Instead, people from every different socioeconomic class, every different culture in the first century all said, we hate that guy. Kill him. Except for a ragtag bad news bears group of losers and uh, 'er ne'er-do-wells who sensed God's favor and God's grace and said, I need that, and responded in faith to follow Jesus. But no dominant cultural uh, group of people said, we love what that guy is saying. Why? Because we're enemies of God. I don't mean to harp on this, but I want to get into our third point, and I really want to dispel the myth that we, outside of Faith in Jesus, our enemies of God, not to make Christmas a downer, but to be accurate with us about what's true about God. So sometimes it's common in Orange County. Oh, I'd say Orange County has a bunch of people, right? Millions of people. There are hundreds of thousands of people who hate God and would be honest about the fact that they're enemies of God. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who love God, worship Him with all of their heart. Their life is rooted in Him and His grace. And then there's a huge majority of people who are very comfortable with God, but end up kind of making God in their own image. Instead of us being people made in God's image, they make God in their own image to say something like this. I don't like Christianity always talking about how sinful everyone is or that we're enemies of God, but why can't we just love everyone? Or Um, I love the loving parts, or what I deem, loving parts of who God is. And so I accept those parts of God. And the other parts, God's opinions about my money or my view of some political issue or a social issue. I don't like those, but I like this part of God. It's all just this muddy middle of a majority of people in Orange County and probably everywhere that say, I don't hate God. In the part where you reject how God has revealed himself, is that not exactly what you're doing? It's just like you watch a movie or you read a book, and the most sinister evil people are always the people who act really nice and evil, right? You watch a movie, you watch something. The people who are always big baddies where they're always like, their eyes are green and they just look like some crazy creature, yeah, they're always bad. That's fine. They're always bad. The most evil people are always the ones that act really nice. And then at some point in the movie, you go, I knew you were evil. Those people are the worst kinds. Maybe they're trying to lie to you. Maybe we're lying to ourselves. But the, the enemy, the enmity that we have with God is only made worse when we're saying, I'm not your enemy. I'm your friend. But in fact, reject the real Jesus. Or sometimes we say, um, I could never believe in a God that's allowed bad circumstances to happen to me. And Jesus came to, to heal those circumstances and to heal you in the midst of hurt in the life. I'm not minimizing that by any means. But really, when you say that, I could never follow a Jesus who allowed this circumstance in my life. What you're saying, on some level, is that God is not good unless he abides by my definition of good. That's because we're enemies of the real God as he's revealed himself. So the question is, do you love God? 
Do you love the God that in Job, Job complains that bad things happen to him, and then God overwhelms him with a storm and says, here's my answer to why you have bad circumstances. I was around at the beginning of creation. You weren't. Accept who I am and accept who you are. There's your answer. Or to, to accept the God in Romans 9, where we ask, wait a minute, I'm sinful, but you made me. How are you just if you made me sinful? And God says, oh, are pots telling potters how to be shaped now? There's your answer. Or are we willing to see the, the, the just holy God that says, if you touch Mount Sinai, you'll die. Or when this guy Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant uh, against the rules and then just goes, Bleh, and then falls dead. Like a God who doesn't sit by our Western American 2019 cultural values, but is something totally above it and outside of time. Because that's God. He's bigger. He's bigger than the box you put him in. So we're enemies with God. I'm just trying to point that reality out. And then Jesus mediates between these warring groups. The first step to having peace between you and God is to accept the mediator. If I have a nice head of hair, which I think I have a decent head of hair, but my wife at Christmas gives me Rogaine and a wig if it doesn't work, my response, of course, would be to say, why would you give me this? I don't need this. I have wonderful life. I mean, it's receding a little bit. It's just been about two years of, like, every day. <laughs> it's getting a little higher. But no, I don't need that. I have a nice head of hair. Or if you think you're an expert on a subject and someone gives you, like, the most basic book on that subject for Christmas, you go, I'm an expert on this subject. Why would you? I already know this. I don't need this gift. Or... If you look in the mirror and you feel like you're pretty fit and then like everyone in your family gives you weight loss books or diet books, you go, this is starting to get a little insulting. Or the, some of the best advice you ever receive in life, never turn down a stick of gum. Because if, if you don't think you have bad breath, but someone else says, hey, would you like some gum? Accept it. Here's the point. If you don't think you need the gift... Because you don't think you're enemies. You don't think you're lacking. You don't think you have a problem with Jesus at all. And then you get a gift. Of course it won't mean anything to you. And that goes if you're not a Christian or as a Christian. I mean, to the extent that we say, yeah, Jesus, cool, manger, great. It enacted a thing in history. I get it. But if you don't think that you desperately need a mediator to come from God into your life and pose that question to you, which is, are you willing to have peace with this God. And unless you say yes to that, and then you start to hear from the Gospels, hear from Jesus as he speaks to you in a sense, that I'm willing to go to the cross to make that mediation happen. Of course there won't be a joy at Christmas. You didn't need the gift. But in God's love, he sent a son to do that mediation. And then we see, at the end of everything, the joy and the peace that our heart longs for will be true in Jesus Christ. I'm reminded in the movie Hook, where um, an old Wendy goes to Peter, and in the movie, it's before Peter Pan, he's old now, and he doesn't remember, he has amnesia, there's something, there's a, there's a distant memory of his past as Peter Pan as a young boy and all the adventures they went on, but he, doesn't, he can't fully grasp it, he hasn't fully attained to understanding that identity that he had, he forgets it. 
And then his kids start to tell him all sorts of stories. And then Wendy, as an old woman, tells him the story. And he laughs and says, oh, if it were true. And then she looks at Peter Pan and says, the stories are true. What if the story's true? Like, what if you got over your ego that said, I'm not an enemy of God, I'm a good person, I'm better than most people. And what if you saw something beautiful and wonderful from a distant land, a, a, a heaven even, a promised land where God is, but because of our brokenness, because of our ego, we were enemies to that land. But then all of a sudden, a mediator came and broke into our reality, made it possible for us to be freed up to this other identity that we have. What if the story's true? That's Luke's contention. And if that's true, then all of the justice and the love and the identity that you're longing for will also be true. And that's what's promised for us in our final passage as we close in Revelation 21. Like, think about the love that you want. Think about the identity you're looking for and read, hear these words in Revelation 21. God will come down to earth and make his dwelling place among us. He'll dwell with his people. They will be his people and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death, no more mourning, crying, or pain. For the old order has passed away. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives the city light. The lamb that was slain is the lamp. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor to it. On no day will its gates ever shut, for there will be no night. In Christ's return, because, because of his birth, because of his life, life and death on the cross, there will be a time where the justice and light and love that you look for will be fulfilled in your heart in Christ's return. That uh, future that we have in God, we foreshadow, we foretaste, we live with today as Christians. And imagine then, if you're crying this Christmas, Imagine the future where you have a God who is your God, you are his people, and he wipes away the tear from your eye. Imagine a future that you have with him where there is no crying or pain because of the presence. And imagine if you are in darkness, a light that has shined at the birth of Jesus and a light that will fully illuminate the entire world through our future in Jesus. My hope is that Christmas is bright for you. And my hope is that we apply some of these things, uh, taking full hold of the identity that we have in God, the light that we have in God, the peace, the joy that we have in God because of the advent of Christ. Let's pray.